Hello! Uh, a couple bits to cover before we get into this bonus content. Uh, so first of all, due to the current uh, geopolitical events, I guess, I guess uh, it's fair for me to say that me and Sam are fully on the train of Black Lives Matter. And uh, I mean, for most of Carbon Rider Double, we were yelling about how the angry cop attacking people was real shitty. And I feel like we've been pretty liberal in a lot of our uh, content like even though we're not explicitly political podcasts, you can kind of tell the way we're leaning in that we are number one, <laughs> our our uh, biggest our biggest love is seeing Nazis punch and explode. So I I mean we we don't have uh you know super in much more to say than that. Uh, but yeah, just to cover that before going on. Second, so this is the first bit of bonus content for the content tornado that I promised a little bit ago. Uh, this, so me and Sam, we've been trying to do podcasts for a while, and before, we would usually do a few podcasts, uh, uh, a few episodes of a particular podcast before we publish it online, and Burkusatsu is the first one that actually we were confident enough to post. So, there's a few we've done, and, uh, this was Canon Chills, where me and Sam explore kind of the expanded content of famous fictional universes, uh, so like a like if there was a TV show we might look at a book or like a, if there's a movie we might we might look at a tie-in comic stuff like that, and it, it's just us you know reviewing it and talking about it in the usual podcast format. Uh, for this one, uh, well you'll see, but it's uh, for Star Trek Q and Law, and we also brought in our sister Ellen, who you remembered from the mess that was the Star Wars: A Solo Story episode. So uh, with all that in mind, uh, let's get into it. Oh, and the and this episode is like years old, and uh, we we didn't know how, <laughs> you may you may be shocked to hear, but we weren't great with audio quality back then. So uh, you're you're used to it by now. Anyway, here we go. Shills, an exploration of the deep, dark corners of your favorite fictional universes. I'm Harry. And I'm Sam. And today we have a special guest of, of open quotation, honor, end quotation. <laughs> our we, have, we have someone else to blame. Yeah. Our sister, Ellen. Introduce yourself, Ellen. Hello, my name is Ellen. I am their sister and I chose this book. What book are we doing? We are doing, is it... Is it called Q-in-Law? It is called Q-in-Law. It's called the, Q-in-Law. Remember the name of the pain you brought into our lives. <laughs> That's what our parents said to each other. Um, oh. But uh, it's, so Q-in-Law is a book that I vaguely remember from when I was probably 11 or 12 because I, I was a huge Star Trek nerd and I would read lots and lots of Star Trek The Next Generation books. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, like, Star Trek novels. We're going to cycle back to this universe again and again during this podcast mm-hmm. because there are libraries 
full of just side stories from mm-hmm. various authors with various levels of knowledge and competence of the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. And so this is a pretty rich vein that we intend to mine. Mm-hmm. So would you say that this book was formative for you in any matter? The reason I remember this book is because, and this is going to get a little gross, but when I was very young, I thought it was kind of sexy. Like... <laughs> Like for for some reason it 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 left a, a weird pubescent impression on my brain that like the reason I remember it is because it's one of the first books I read that had like some some weird sex stuff. Oh yeah, it gets weird. Yeah, it gets weird. And it's it's one of those books where it's like I have a positive memory of it. But looking back, I am horrified that I have any brain space to put this, like, that I read this when I was that young. But, well, maybe we shouldn't spoil too much our opinion of the book. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this is this is a Star Trek novel. Uh, this is the point of the show where we would explain the fictional universe, but if you don't know Star Trek, you should just look it up. Yeah, it's, you know, a sci-fi future that's, everyone's a socialist, everyone gets along. Yeah. Nice, it's a positive spin. Nice clean jumpsuits. What's, yes. what's it called? A, a post... Some... Post-scarcity. Post yeah, yeah. post-scarcity society a uh, uto- full of socialists. Yeah. A utopian post-scarcity society. Yes. Mm-hmm. That explores in its various uh, moral quandaries uh, how different races can get along, how different species can get along, just mm-hmm. how we can get along with our neighbors. What, mm-hmm. what is the man? What is consciousness? What is life? Mm-hmm. What is good of this universe? Mm-hmm. What the fuck is Q? Yeah, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, this book, however, is not about any of that. No, uh, <laughs> uh, this book is uh, exploration of romance between two characters from the Next Generation: uh, the Walking Days Ex Machina Q and the Living Ruiner of Episodes Luxwana Troy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Luxwana Troy was played by Gene Roddenberry's wife. Gene Roddenberry being the creator of Star Trek. And she is personally responsible for this book being published because it was written, but then Cooler Heads decided to maybe let this be one of those forgotten chapters. But Luxwana Troy, well, not Luxwana, uh... Major Barrett. Major Barrett. Uh, She basically forced them to publish it. Yeah, they did. The rest is history. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. When a publisher is forced to publish a book at gunpoint, you can tell it's going to be just a page turner. (laughs) Yeah. So two of the three of us present here, Sam and Ellen, were privileged enough to listen to the abridged audiobook version, which has Majel Barrett and uh, John Delancey reprising the roles of Looks on IQ, reading out the whole thing. I read the unabridged text <laughs> version, and boy, does that... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so the abridged version of this like full-length novel is under two hours long. My working theory is that the actors simply refused to read certain parts of the book because they were either so terribly written or so terribly ill thought out and conceived ethically and morally and religiously. They looked at their contract and they were like, I don't need to make that much money. At what what point would you look at this book and say, this is the part I want to read. This is the part I don't want to read. I think there's a difference between just like roll your eyes bad and vomit into a microphone bad, which I think was the difference John Delancey had to uh, had to choose here. I feel like the most charitable interpretation here is that Majel Barrett made them publish this because then she could make them pay her to read the audiobook. <laughs> if this was a blatant cash grab, it would raise my estimation of the quality of the work. I, I think that 
you know, she was a woman who loved to act. We're, we're bashing this way too much beforehand. We gotta move into what it actually is. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about the plot of this book. It okay. starts with a pair of love-struck teenagers. Yes. Across the lines and like a... Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it's a Romeo and Juliet story. They repeatedly mention Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. They, they yeah. just lampshade the shit out of that and don't even try to hide it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a matter of shitty authors everywhere making references to much better Shakespeare works in kind of a desperate attempt to latch out to that talent. To say, mm-hmm. come on, this is like that good, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a couple warring space trader clans, uh, the names of which I am not going to try to remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, They're yeah. not memorable in the slightest. One clan has a son, one clan has a daughter, bim bam. They want to combine... Combined into one family. There's a semi-interesting action scene where he sneaks onto their ship and kind of a ritual combat thing and demands for the hand of the daughter in marriage. Mm-hmm. It's given. Yes. And then the Federation basically rents out the Enterprise to be the wedding location. Yes, they take the most powerful warship in the Federation <laughs> Navy and use it as a wedding reception for, yeah. and I quote, space gypsies, as yeah. Data referred to them as. They, they could have put down the deposit to just rent out a space old country buffet, but the Enterprise was nearby, and it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, good call, John Luke. Good call. Really minor note here. Uh, these these space trader clans, they use fighters, which is not a thing that happens in Star Trek. Uh, it, it very seldom happens in Star Trek, like, you Pretty know. Pretty much just Star Trek Beyond the recent movie and that one episode of Voyager where there was a swarm of small ships. It's just not a thing in Star Trek. They occasionally will have, like, some small fighter craft in episodes so that they can just blow up a lot of ships, like, en masse yeah. and show how badass the the Enterprise is. But, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's, for whatever reason, the physics don't work in the Star Trek universe. Honestly, they probably just did to distance themselves from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway. And also that they could have a scene later in the book where the two star-crossed lovers are flying fighters and they don't realize that they're attacking each other. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. John Luke has rented out the Enterprise as a wedding reception hall. All the nearby dignitaries show up, including Luxwana Troy, the mother of Diana Troy, uh, the therapist of the Starship Enterprise. Luxwana Troy shows up in mourning gear because her daughter is old and unfuckable. (laughs) Yeah. And this, this Don't you dare call her un- Diana Troy. <laughs> Don't call her unfuckable. Her mother called her unfuckable. <laughs> no. That's no. not what no, they're that's saying not it. at all. That's her not- society called her unfuckable. No, 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 she no. hit the unfuckable age. No, 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 no. She's, she's, she's hitting the non-childbearing age. Like, that's not the same as unfuckable, okay? It's like, her mom is mourning the fact that she will probably never have a family right. to continue their line. Judgments of Marina Sirtis' fuckability aside. <laughs> like, this is the beginning of the real bad writing, because there is... Alexwana Troy is a, you know, notorious character in the show, and that's kind of interpreted by the author in a weird way, where, like, everyone is running around with their chicks head off, like, oh god, if Luxwana shows up, everything will explode immediately. And there's a weird, awkward, like, just to show the terrible writing, I don't have it with me, because fuck that book, but <laughs> the, the transport chief O'Brien, he's, like, when he's musing about, like, maybe I could accidentally teleport her to a different part of the ship or something, or, and when she comes onto the ship, he says, like, oh, her luggage is notorious for being all, like, like, it ridiculously overblows the already badly written cliche written parts of her character to silly proportions when like she's you know an an old she's an old lady with heavy luggage you know you don't need to make that into you know Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) well I mean like I think that the author was trying to stay within Luxana Troy Luxana Luxana Troy uh 
has like three character beats that are hit over and over and over again in the series. She has heavy luggage that she thinks John Luke Picard should carry for her. She has a giant manservant, yeah. and she thinks that everyone's in love with her. And she also really wants to get her daughter hitched, specifically to Riker or more generally to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, she, she has some actually well-written moments, Deep Space Dad, because that's a series with actual good writing. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's like, true. The relationship between her and Odo is actually kind of... It's you know, sweet. Yeah. It's sweet. I, you know, like, like a lot of people hate her character. I actually always love her character. I always, like, celebrate when I see her on the, the screen. The problem is that she's almost always terribly written. She's written as a comedy character. Yeah. And she's supposed to be this, like, hyper-intelligent, hyper-competent diplomat for her race. Yeah, she can. she's literally a mind reader. So, yes. So she, she should be always really judging the intentions of people, easily inserting herself into social situations. Instead, she kind of barges around, doesn't seem to understand that everybody really hates her. Does this bring us to the question? Yeah, that, we'll get to that later. Okay. We're still in the summary of, like, the first 50 pages of the yeah. book. Uh, Looks why the Troy shows up, and, and uh, yeah, she she's in morning clothes because uh, Marina Sirtis is past the marrying age. No, uh, the, the bearing of children age. Yeah. You guys keep getting it wrong. I still think it's because she wasn't a fuckable anymore. But Stop well, it! <laughs> Stop it! It's but also present about. in this collection of diplomats is Q, sporting yeah. a rear admiral's uniform from, like, naval days or something. It's and, Q. And, and the other weird part of the show, like, Q is this being who can do literally everything, and yet everybody on the crew, like, gets constantly barking orders at him. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that they should cower before his countenance, because this is John Luke Picard, he is, like, a more cultured man. But, like, Warfus sounds like, man, I'm gonna punch out Q, and if he actually <laughs> tried it, he'd probably be you know, destroyed instantly. Yes, so Q is a god. Not to get around the fact Q can do basically anything, sometimes, when the plot requires it. He has all knowledge, he is all-powerful, and he uses that power to be a dick to John Luke. And in this particular book, he also uses it to seduce Luxwana Troy. Which is so weird. Yeah. But I'm not entirely sure why Q showed up on the Enterprise this time. In general, it's always a stretch when he shows up. He's just this petty god who shows up to... No, 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 uh, he... Q always has a very good reason for doing what he does. That's why this book is so badly written. Mm. Yeah. As it is, he shows up just in the middle of the reception when the two training, when the two, you know, clans are just kind of chatting like their heads. He, you know, should, he shows up with the two heads and starts telling embarrassing stories about the times he messed with the Enterprise, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Picard shows up. He's all, you know, angry. He tries to say, you know, get off my ship. Q says, hey, I'm going to be real nice at this party. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to interfere with anything. I'm just here to be a nice wedding guest. Mm-hmm. And they kind of search the minds and say, well, we can't actually kick him out, so I guess we'll let him do this, you know? Yeah, they legally can't kick him out because, you know, the two warring races, apparently there's tradition that anyone is welcome at a wedding if they are peaceable, so they would violate the treaty if they threw out Q in addition to being completely unable to do so because, as we mentioned, he's a god, and if he wants to be there, he'll be there. Mm-hmm. And they seem to keep forgetting that. Is Guinan in this book? Yeah. She is. She shows up a little bit at the beginning, uh, you know, giving samples of the basically banquet stuff. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. That was so weird, too. It was just a cameo. Mm-hmm. She was only there to have a psychic, like, connection with Q and be like, he's here. So what else happens in this book? Nothing, really. The, 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 no. The, okay. I mean, we're switching out a little bit. The radar of the plot of the book could be described in five sentences. So, 
for some reason, Q slowly starts turning the husband and the bride against each other. He basically shows the husband an image of what his beautiful bride will look like as she gets older. Mm-hmm. And then the, when the husband starts, like... You, know, you mean his, groom, right? Oh, when the groom... Yes. I, I don't know words. <laughs> words are complicated. When the husband-to-be, his mind starts wandering and he starts looking at other women now that his affections have been kind of messed up. Uh, Q points this out to the wife and there's some bickering and feeding that starts. At pretty much at the same time, he's also macking on Lux Wanda Troy, having these... These entirely romanceless conversations where basically all he does is explain to her, I'm an immensely powerful and amazing man. And Luxwana Troy goes, oh, oh my, oh, mm, mm. And every other scene, Troy shows up and says, Luxwana, like, mom, he's he's an evil god. He will do <laughs> terrible things. He should do it. And Luxwana says, oh, shush, you know. Mm-hmm. I know myself for I'm men, you know. And hey, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically the extent of the argument. Yeah, she just no-sells her reaction as she's being, like, teleported around the galaxy, being yeah. given, like, power cosmic, being given omnipotence briefly to understand at all one, the secrets of the universe. At one point, I'm not sure if this was in the abridged uh, version, uh, Q allows Luxwana to experience the Q sensation of death, which almost, like, destroys her consciousness. Uh. Uh, that was not in the audiobook. No. Uh, there's a number of things that they cut from the audiobook, including uh, a side story involving Wesley Crusher being granted a sex slave by one of the trading houses. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, Wesley Crusher, because he, basically he just listens to some of the, the bride-to-be is very stressed, and, you know, Wesley listens to her talk for a bit, and he gives, like, a little bit of basic advice. And as a reward, he is given a slave, essentially, to marry him and have sex with him. And this is treated by the very cultured and uh, forward-thinking Enterprise crew as a brilliant joke, you know? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, the God. morally upright of the Enterprise, the saviors of humanity, the bright shining light of the Federation, uh, laughs at sex slavery. They're elbowing him going, and going, good job, Wesley. How'd you catch that one? Oh, God. His mom, Beverly Crusher, is basically giving him tips on safe sex and oh, stuff like God. that. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, Riker, I'm not sure if Riker tries to hit that, but there's definitely a scene when the slave basically says, no, Wesley is the only one for me forever now. Oh, God. And, uh, awful. Especially because, I mean... Just, just to clarify, this is a plot, like, Q does a lot of shit in this novel. Q had nothing to do with this, right? No. No. Yeah. This is the B-plot. This yeah. is the B-plot uh, for which Q is not responsible. I don't think Wesley's even in the audiobook. No, yeah. he does not and, appear and, and be, at all. And, and to be clear, uh, she is given to Wesley even before Q does his manipulating stuff. So it's 100% not anything he does. Lovely. Yeah. I just feel like crawling under a rock now. Oh, you suggested well, this. Well, here's the I pun- did. Here's the punchline. Here's the punchline to the B plot, Ellen. She was only given away as a sex slave because she was super incompetent at all her duties, and the bride to be just wanted her to not be around anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so she's a woman who's only good for sex. Yeah. Yes. Great gender politics. She Star was Trek. given like, into slavery because she was an inconvenience. Like, oh, she, God. She, keep, she keeps saying that to give her that she was a gift and to give her back would be a great insult. But turns out that's not a part of their culture at all. Which means that either she's lying just to marry Wesley, or she's been like lied to all this time. <laughs> um, it's just tricked her. Just to be clear, this this is somehow imprinted on my twelve year old brain. Mm-hmm. Like like this this book I read this book when I was very young, so part of it pro- part of this book book probably shaped my adulthood in some way. Loaded feminist Ellen. Loaded, <laughs> loaded feminist Ellen somehow emerged from the pages of this book. 
Yeah, we'll get into this uh, in a bit, but when you combine Star Trek and sexual politics, it's never a good idea. Mm. Back in the A-plot, uh, you know, Luxwana Troy is, is through no romancing of any real sort, yeah. drawn deeper and deeper into, you know, connection with Q. Q basically eventually promises to give her Q powers and lets her, you know, protect her daughter on the Enterprise forever and ever and stuff like that. We jump to the wedding uh, where the two, like, well, the bride and the groom, uh, they've been manipulated by Q in very transparent and stupid ways. And so, of course, they break up at the altar and their families immediately resume warring each other. Yes. It's genocide immediately for both. And the Enterprise just kind of has to sit around and do nothing because Prime Directive can't involve anything and all that shit. I mean, these were... I feel like these cultures... Weren't they almost part of the Federation? Like I don't know. They were like neutral parties. They called the Enterprise to like be witnesses and negotiators and neutral third party. Like yeah. it's I feel like the Prime Directive is used very broadly by some well, people. Well here here's I think that I think that this culture actually falls into a weird loophole mm-hmm. in, in Prime Directive because Prime Directive generally is about It's about non spacefaring races. Yeah, it's about non spacefaring races. So well, it's people on planets, and these people have no planet of their own. They only exist in space. Well, because they're space gypsies. Because they are space... We, we need to stop saying that word. <laughs> they use the word. No, I, I know! I am quoting the book. Let, let's call yeah. it the G word, because we can't. We can't. They're this, space Romani. This, this yeah. shows up in this generation, too. Like, I guess... When did, you know, Western culture realize that we shouldn't call them gypsies anymore? We should call them... What, Ro- it's Ro- Romani. Roma? Romani? Well, I don't, I don't think that we should that, that, call them that either. I think we should just call them like, like, like space Romeo and Juliet because, like, like it is basically Romeo and Juliet. Like for some reason they tack that G, the the G word on there. <laughs> like just, just it's like the weirdest afterthought that Data says it. They're like space gypsies, really, Data. You mm-hmm. want to use? Ugh, it's tell, don't show. I know. God, it's the worst. You chose this. This is your fault. Oh my God, this is my fault. <laughs> Everything's my fault. So there's a scene where the two lovers get in fighters to defend their family's honor and end up almost killing each well, other. Well, not even that. Like, maybe this is, again, this is an abridged thing, but the bride-to-be... Right, she just gets on a fighter for no reason. Well, because, she doesn't like, really have a plan. She she's suicidal. There, she? She has, I think she's suicidal, right? Because she is the woman in the relationship, she is dumb and emotional and just goes to basically <laughs> sue Kamikaze, fling herself against the enemy forces and be killed. While yeah. the, while the you know... The groom. The husband-to-be. I'm sticking to those terms. <laughs> You can't correct me. Uh, he gets in his fighter and is going to go out and be actually effective and do stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, for he is shown to be competent because he's male. He wins her hand through the ritual. There's no equality at all during the thing. Uh. And uh, yeah, Luxwana is basically given Q powers at the right moment to snap her fingers and make all of this not happen. And then everybody just kind of gets confused and goes back and meets back up with uh, the Enterprise where... People just kind of explain the problems and it's almost immediately diffused. Mm-hmm. In, in a stunning scene of, again, gender equality, Picard points out to the husband-to-be that, yes, you know, your wife will age, but, you know, and as you will age with her, you will continually see her as the woman you love. And, you know, yes. every wrinkle you wore. Her beauty will fade, but, you know, just because she will become valueless in her old age, you'll love her and you won't care. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you know, because it's kind of beautiful saying, like, you'll grow together. That'll always be good. Uh, flip it around. The lesson he gives to the wife is, yes, your husband's eye will wander. But if he wasn't able to appreciate beauty, would he really be able to appreciate you? Come on. He'll probably not cheat on you. That's almost exactly what he says. 
I know, I just imagine John Luke just putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, Play it gonna play. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta get ready for that. He's asking her to take one for the team, isn't he? He is. Oh, John Luke. Mm-hmm. And and so that think is Think of the... your think of the patriarch of your family. Think of your male controlled society. Do it for your country, do it for England. Yeah. So that's resolved, like right away. And then they point out that they only broke up because Q messed with them slightly. Yes. Which, I'll point out later, it's not a Q move. But, uh, yeah, Q then basically does a total heel turn and says, Yes, I did it all because I hate love. You humans are stupid with their love and your love is everything dumb and whatever. And also, looks like, Troy, you're a dumb bitch and I hate you. That's... But, but he By has way, given I'm... her Q yes. powers at this point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and he can't take him back for some reason. Turns out there's another Q messing with him, but mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then there's a wacky scene where Lux Wanda Troy all angry and, you know, goes what I'm sure the Rogers thought was an amazing display of girl power and, you know, tortures Q with her godlike powers. They yeah. actually specifically rob it of girl power later when they uh, when they reveal that there was a second male Q who was actually keeping Luxwana in power. Yeah. A man gave her the strength. Yes, it. a man allowed her to keep the strength that another man granted her. <laughs> because Q, even though they're extra-dimensional timeless beings, are divided into male and female. Yes. Thumbs up. I'm giving a thumbs up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Win-win for the patriarchy. And that's basically it. Uh, yeah. Luxwana like- slaps around Q for a little bit in, yes, Looney Tunes-style action sequences that are... So out of place. What, she turns him into a tree and tries to chop him down with a chainsaw? They are so weird. Once that's all finished, and decide that this was a great story to tell, uh, everything goes back to exactly as it would have gone if Q hadn't showed up and done anything. The couple is married, and the Enterprise basically just sails on into the night. Yeah. Uh, there's a little joke when, you know, basically they try to get around the whole fuckability problem by saying that Troy is going to marry Data. Mm-hmm. Now that's the joke it ends on. But wah wah, Data's going to marry Troy. Because Data doesn't understand sarcasm and jokes, I th- I'm, I think there's a decent chance he actually thought that was an honest proposal and took it on because he respects Troy and would actually be willing to explore the relationship. Well, 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 well like, like I've, I've been watching Star Trek. Like, like, the next generation I've gone back and started watching from the beginning. And, like, the, the episode where um, Keiko and O'Brien get married, mm-hmm. I think there's actually a scene where someone says... Well, you know, you, you'll never understand marriage data or something. And data's like, well, what if I get married? Even, like, without his emotions, he sees a possibility of himself getting married. Which <laughs> so, is actually really interesting. So I think there's a decent chance that, you know, when Luxemana left, you know, somebody had to say data, hey, we just used you as a tool to get around this, you know, thing. And mm-hmm. that's so poor data. And data would yes. say, oh, don't, oh, don't worry, I don't have human emotions. Then go off to his room where he totally has human emotions. Like, and just cries and about it. Just and cries silicon tears. stares at the wall while quietly petting his cat. Like, he, he's the most, he's more human than all of us. He's so emo. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a side story of zero consequence where characters act completely out of character. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, how did that sex slave story resolve with Wesley? Oh, uh, well, she she had to go back when the war broke out, and then uh, she actually alerted the Enterprise that the wife did the dumb thing. Uh, you know, which kind of led to the wife being saved by Luxwana. So because she technically saved her life, she, uh, she actually. Decides to treat her a little bit better as a slave or whatever, so she stops, <laughs> so she tries, stops trying to give him away. All right, so Wesley regifts her back to the bride, yeah, as a wedding present. She she remains property, just uh, better treated. <laughs> Question mark. 
Cause, remember, because this is an entirely foreign culture, she could she could be ritually sacrificed the next week to increase crops or whatever. <laughs> and the federal should be like, "Well, prime directive, yeah. waka waka, can't get involved, non interference." Whoa, <laughs> that's exactly how everyone should refer to the prime directive. Prime directive, waka waka, because yeah. <laughs> it does. They don't make sense. Okay, so we got some questions about this book. Oh, do we have questions? Yes. So, for starters. Is Star Trek 100% terrible about gender politics, always, in all ways, at all times? So, this book is not a shining star uh, in the Star Trek universe as far as gender politics goes, but is it indicative of deeper problems within Star Trek? Now, of course, the series debuted in the 60s, so there was going to be some issues there. Uh, Gene Roddenberry actually famously wanted to have a second-in-command uh uh, be a woman on the original Enterprise. Uh, the network like barred him from permission to do that, uh, but they did like kind of push the envelope a little bit with women in the original series. But when the series moved forward, did the politics? I feel like they were trying hard, but the limits of these writers' like knowledge and abilities and stuff. Like, I is mean, it powerful women written by men? Is it the Joss Whedon problem? Like, These guys are no Joss Whedon. <laughs> no. That'd be if Buffy the Vampire Slayer was, like, really, really good at, like, assisting the actual Vampire Slayer. <laughs> like, if she gave great advice to Giles or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you rewatch The Next Generation, you're struck with how dated a lot of the gender politics feel. Mm-hmm. It feels so 80s and 90s. Yeah. But there's a couple things that it's, like, ahead of its time on. Every once in a while, there's, like, a brief glint of ahead of its time genius. There's, like, famously, there's uh, extras, male extras walking around in the back of some scenes who are wearing skirts. In the future, it's possible for males and females to wear dresses. Mm-hmm. without. So that's actually an idea ahead, of, way ahead of its time. So was is that gender politics, though, or is that them just hiring, like, male actors and, you know, not having the wardrobe? Like, Star no. Trek was kind of famously anti-gay during the Next it Generation is. days. Oh, yeah. That's what makes, like, the whole skirt thing so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Is like, they, they definitely, like, completely sidestep the gay issue at every fucking turn they can. <laughs> you know, like, like there's there's actually one episode where um, Gates... Uh, the, the Dr. Crusher falls in love with a man Trill. His Trill is put into a female body who's then totally down to continue the relationship with Dr. Crusher. And Dr. Crusher has this crazy, gross reaction. Like this really weird reaction that was like kind of horrifying for me. Mm-hmm. Like she's obviously like disgusted by the idea of being with a female. Interesting. But but everything she says is very neutral, but the expression on her face is, like, disgust. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wonder, like, in Deep Space Nine, they re-ran that plot. Like, you know, one of the main characters... By the way, Atril is an alien race uh, that is actually a slug inside, basically, a near-human. Mm. And so the slug is actually in control of the body. Well, and, it, it, there's a symbiosis. Uh, there's kind of a symbiosis, but when you're... When you're talking about a trill, you're more or less talking about the slug inside their brain. And so uh, when the host body dies, a trill will often get a new body. And they can live for, like, centuries and centuries, just accumulate, like, hundreds of years of knowledge and experience. Yeah, in Deep Space Nine, one of the main characters was a trill. And in a past life, you know, they uh, they were married to another trill. Both their host bodies died. They moved forward. And when they were introduced, they were both female. And they actually 
kind of tried to hook up mm-hmm. on Deep Space Nine. So I wonder if that was in reaction to that Star Trek Next Generation plot. Well, there's one episode where Riker falls in love with someone who's like a neutral. Yeah. That's something a, that's something different. A gender neutral race. <laughs> but 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 they start to become female because of his manly love, right? So that's yeah. basically how that plays out. Like my understanding is next year. He's such of a man he can turn even a blank into a woman. <laughs> like <laughs> he can he can turn turn a chair into a woman. Have you seen the way he, he straddles them chairs? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Riker, man. But so um but 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 I think I, my understanding is next uh, Deep Space Nine was supposed to have a central gay relationship in the first season. Mm. Like Bashir, Dr. Bashir and Garrick, the Kardashian, or Kardashian, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tick now. I can't unturn it off. The Kardashian, Garrick, they were actually supposed to be uh, a, a gay interspecies couple. couple, which is like, it's amazing to watch their friendship now. In the, the like, well, both the actors played the relationship yeah. as gay, yeah. even though the directors and producers were against it. Yes, like it, they were never written as lovers, but both actors were like, yes, yeah, group, we're probably having sex. The, both the actors wanted it, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They wanted that to be like their characters' journey. Instead, they have Doctor Bashir be have like a sexless obsession with like the very pretty female. Mm-hmm. Like, which, which, like, that's kind of sad that, like, like it's better to be obsessed with someone who will never have you than to have, like, a gay relationship with someone who actually cares about you in the Star Trek universe. Star Trek, for all its embracing of biological diversity, of philosophical diversity, of everything can be different everywhere in the universe, it pretty much always assigns male and female roles to mm-hmm. whatever it has and kind of follows those through in traditional... Western, you know, philosophy. I would, I would actually say that there's male, there's female, and there's gross. Mm-hmm. Like there's three kinds of aliens: you're male, or you're female, or you're gross. Mm-hmm. Now, in Star Trek Beyond, like a movie which produced uh, or which uh, dropped just like weeks ago from when we're recording this, who knows if we'll ever release this one? Hey, maybe Star Trek Beyond was released two years ago when you're listening right now. Hey, uh, but uh, you know, there was a gay relationship, and Sulu was. Uh, uh, written as having a husband and uh, in addition to having a daughter in Star Trek Beyond. So yay. that was a nice first. Maybe well, they're moving in a positive direction. It's like a weird yay because George Takei was actually against it. I know and I understand why. but Well, well because Sulu as a character had been established to be straight. Like, well, and- uh, he wasn't though. He was established to have a daughter. It was never mentioned if he had a wife. Like, I wonder about that. I wonder about George Takei's reaction to that. George Takei played him as straight. I and I understand that. I mean, because you know Gene Roddenberry, he was big friends with Gene Roddenberry, and it was like yeah. he was his character. I think that that's that was basically George K's thing. Like, yeah, you know, I get it. But at this, like, it's it's one of those things where it's like, but it, well, think about it the other way. What if they made a gay a gay character straight? Wouldn't that be the worst thing? Don't they do that all the time? Well, yeah, and it's yeah. no, no, and that Deep Space Nine, they that, did that that's, Star Trek next. That's, that's yes. one way. That's one way to look at it. Is it's it's is is it the same as turning a gay character straight? That's arguable. But I know that, like on Pop Rocket, they have a Star Trek nerd on that show who's a gay man, and he said that when he saw, like you know, understanding George Takei's argument against making Sulu gay. Still, when he saw that scene where Sulu was saying goodbye to his husband and saying goodbye to his daughter, it made his little gay nerd heart sing. Okay, yeah. so it's like... <laughs> it was a beautiful... It was like a five-second beat, but it was a very lovely beat. Yeah. yeah. It was not... It was well done for what it was. Like, Okay, yeah. so I guess the answer to the question then, Star Trek was 100% terrible in gender politics all the time, but it's starting to try now. <laughs> yeah. All right, so moving on to number two. 
What is Luxwana Troy's deal? The Luxwana Troy paradox. I like her, but I know I'm in the minority. <laughs> she is a mind reader who must constantly be facing thoughts of, oh, this bitch. Like, yeah. basically, that's everyone's reaction to her. But she reads it as, I want to have sex with you. Yeah, like, does she have some weird... Is is she some weird psychic mas- masochist where it's like, oh, yeah, hate me, hate me. Oh, I'll, well, I'll feed off your hate. I, I can't get the the tender love that my biology requires. Well, so. that's one of the reasons she goes after Q is because she can't read him. That's her fast. She's she's in the show. She's fascinated by guys that she can't read and can't get emotions out of. I, Maybe she is a masochist. You I know, don't know. She is she is attracted to Q, like in this admittedly terrible novel. She's attracted to Odo. She's attracted to John Luke. Is she attracted to more like blank guys who she can't get a read on? Mm-hmm. You know what? I kind of I'm start. That's kind of becoming a cliche for me, and I kind of feel like it's bullshit. Like, every time a psychic <laughs> character shows up, like, later in TNG, the episode 10 Man, there's a super strong telepath, like uh, uh, Beta said, mm-hmm. and he meets, uh, you know... Yeah, Data. He meets Data, and he can't read him. It's like, oh, you're real interesting. Like, it feels like, it, like, it, like let's go, True Blood, like, you know, because Suki mm-hmm. can't read the vampires. They're yes. interesting. Twilight... Yes, you know, Edward. I can't Bella. read you. It's because you're too beautiful. I feel like that would almost that would be the other way, where if someone was able to read human minds all the time, like but then couldn't read someone else, they'd be terrified. Yeah, like you, they, that person would be like dead, like not yeah. a per, like an object to them. Yeah, like like a chair. Let's want to should be like effortlessly flowing through conversations and like the perfect ambassador. Mm-hmm. You know, but she's the worst. What if? What if? What if? But, what if she's like secretly a spy for the Dominion or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, like she actually wants the Federation to fail. If Majel Barrett was alive still, I bet you could like write a mini series where and, it turns out that she's. I bet she'd do that. That's amazing. Yeah. And she kept wanting to like marry Riker off to Troy because like she knew he had like a. I don't know. She wanted to ruin his career somehow <laughs> and deprive Starfleet of like a promising officer. She she was trying to seduce Picard because he was the head of the flagship. So it's like an American's so long con. Like looks want a Troy ultimate honeypot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that, I hope that doesn't come off as sexist because I'm trying to give her actual reasons to be doing the things she's doing. Yes, she is supposed to, by all accounts, be this hyper competent, hyper intelligent hyper-reliable negotiator and ambassador, but she isn't. Like, she has every talent, she has every ability, but she's the worst. Well, this, okay, so so here's here's an idea. What if, like, it seems like one of the reasons that she's an ambassador for Beta Z is they don't want her on Beta Z. What if, what if all the Beta Z people know that she is an awful mind reader? Like, what if she's like the Beta Z, like, what if she's like like mentally challenged and they just don't want to deal with it? And so that's why she's the ambassador. You know, like what They if kicked her off Beta Z, like had her marry a human just to keep her out of the bloodline of the family. <laughs> like We can't let there be more Luxwanas in this world. And then the discussion went to some weird places. Let's get back to it. So what is her deal? What is her deal? Like, is she supposed to be a bad character? Is she supposed to be a good character? Are we supposed to like her? Is she the Jar Jar Binks of Gene Roddenberry? Oh, Does he love the character, well. but everyone else hates her? I think like, it's just it's just a failing of the writers where they had Deanna Troy, you know, they gave her the empathic ability so she could be interesting as a counselor. But she's also, like, she was the young female character in the show at the time that Luke Swatish Troy showed up and they wanted to have the domineering mother-in-law. They didn't bother to deal with those two contradicting facts of she would be a mind reader, 
And yeah, she would be her mind reader, and so she should be good in conversations yeah. and empathic and understanding, like her daughter. Was it established like early on that Luxwana was half beta said through her mother? Because I could almost see them of maybe trying to do something interesting if, like, she was human, like Luxwana was human, like this loud, domineering person. But then her father had been able to, through telepathy, read through that and see that she was actually somebody really interesting under. Mm-hmm. That, that could have been interesting. That could have been an interesting character beat. Mm-hmm. But as it is, it just doesn't make sense. No, it yeah. doesn't. I, th- I think it's it was an attempt to give Deanna something to do. Like, I think that Gene Ron... When Gene Ronberry um, envisioned the character of her, like, the main characteristic characteristic he had for Deanna Troy is that she was supposed to have three breasts. <laughs> and, the, and it took, like, the costume people and, like, the the special effects people to be like, Gene, you can't do that. We cannot do that for you. Don't do that. So, like, he had nothing to go on. Like, he, he had no no other ideas except to cast his wife as her mom to make her interesting. Like, it takes, it takes like, almost seven seasons to give Deanna Troy anything interesting to do. She's always just reacting like a child. Lord knows, when those writers try to make come up with something for Deanna to do, it's usually some space entity that knocks her up. <laughs> well, like, like, the one thing that they have her, have happen over and over is, like, some alien species invades her brain. Yeah. That's it man and she was like she was like supposed to be a shakespearean actress before the next generation she was ophelia that woman was not given enough to do whenever they needed some alien to seem strong they show up and beat up war and whenever something horrifying shows up it like just totally destroys troy's brain Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is the worst (laughs) all right so to answer what is lexwana's deal probably bad writing yeah. <laughs> okay, and the final question. Is why my, is Q even there? Why does Q care about love, period? Why even does Q? Why does Q? <laughs> so every time Q shows up in the next generation, he is doing something very important. He is testing humanity in some weird case and usually giving them a chance to show their best. He, or, or, or he is giving them information about a future threat. Like yeah. he intentionally shows the Federation the Borg for the first time in order to give them a chance to kind of prepare. Yeah. So, yeah, he doesn't show up for no reason. He doesn't show up for shits and giggles and to be a high school bully. Basically, after the first two appearances of his, it becomes clear that Q actually likes humanity as an author's side. Mm-hmm. Like, he's he's fighting for them, like, amongst the Q. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, he's not, like, perfect, and, like, there's a lot of growth in that episode when he turns human. Yeah, definitely after that point. He tests humanity... He gives, you know, Riker the chance to be a Q, because, like, he's seeing, like, how power-hungry they are. Mm-hmm. Later on, when uh, he deals with, like, Picard's love interest, like, Vash, for a couple of episodes, like, mm-hmm. she's actually power-hungry, and he actually, in his weird Q way, shows her the air of the ways by kind of, like, you know, being a little bit stalkery, and, like, through Deep Space Nine, and showing her that she's actually a little bit out of her depth. He's a really interesting character, character like, benign eventually trickster god he also shows up on voyager a few times like just mm-hmm. to fuck with janeway because mm-hmm. you know he can't leave a main tv show character alone no yeah so q in the show he can be annoying but he's interesting and he has a plan he has a purpose in the show a very integral plot purpose whereas in this book nothing changed like seriously nothing changed about he- the plot like he made no alterations he made no important like no important additions to the storyline. Everything would be exactly the same if he did not show up. The story is about how Q casts himself as an anti-Cupid, mm-hmm. the enemy of love. And the Q on, of the show would not bother with that. Does he teach anybody a lesson? Maybe Luxwana? 
<laughs> you, should... you know, don't fall in love with galactic god beings. Who... Listen, listen to your daughter a bit more. You know, you <laughs> does know, he do all of that to teach her? That? You know what would have been a great lesson for this book? Sex slavery is awful. Don't do it. <laughs> Just one, come on, man. Also, you know, for the record, he's supposed to be a god. He has a weird-ass power set for a god. Like, he is constantly being, like, tricked and confused and surprised. Doesn't he have, like, control of time? Like, shouldn't, you know, modern scientists are almost being able to, like, send things back and forward in time. Shouldn't Q be able to, like, be a couple steps ahead of, you know, just a normal human? I feel like that's bad sport to just go back in time and undo your space. Mistakes. Mm. But when you're being turned into a tree and attacked with a chainsaw, it seems like the type of thing he would want to be able to do. Well, but, but the other Q guy shows up. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep uh, he's being punished by the Q continuum yeah. at that point. Now, what exactly is he being punished for? Uh, because he was being a bit too much of a dick to too many races and he was made human for a remember. He's, mm-hmm. still, he's still in his parole period from that episode where he was, uh, remember? I suppose so. And there is that other Q that shows up on Voyager who has been locked in an asteroid for a couple millennia, I believe, as punishment yeah. or something. Want, wanting, for, wanting to die. Right, for wanting to die. Yes. In order to prevent a Q from dying. Yeah, they locked him in a tree, or locked him in an asteroid. Imagine, let's take a step back, and imagine these characters well-written. Because, like, like it, I pointed out earlier, Q doing the very subtle thing of, like, Showing the husband, you know, the wife aging. I mean, that's kind of his thing. But I feel like he would be more into big things. But even if that, he was doing that. Like, imagine if this was, like, almost a fight uh, around love between Luke Swana and Q. Like, Q showed up and started messing with these things with, like, big time things. I'll show you what's like in the future and stuff. But Luke Swana, because she can read minds, like, contracting this, like, but I know you actually care. Like, what if this was actually two well-written characters trying Mm -hmm. to deal point... And through that, through their, like, fighting against each other, through their very different power sets and, like, very different levels, what if that was the romance where they actually came to respect each other by the end and Q was like, you know, Luxwana, you're actually kind of cool. Hmm. And Luxwana being, like, the only person in the Enterprise, and you know, Q, I can tell you're actually trying to do a good thing. What if that, you know, they departed on that note? Mm. Wouldn't that be a fucking so much better book than boring romance, day sex machina, nothing matters, dumb revenge. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. Like, the plot doesn't matter. The story doesn't matter. It's a side story of zero relevance. It's a pocket universe that can be completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that was attempted to be buried by the publisher. Thank you, publisher. (laughs) Have we said that? Like, thank you, publisher, for trying to not publish this book. (laughs) Yeah, what if this... What if... Okay, what if the lesson of this book is to Majel Barrett? Like Major, like John Delancey was just having constant, like <laughs> just conversation with Major Barrett for something, and he saw that she needed to be taken down a peg or something. So he mentioned, you know, I hear there's like this book about Luxwana that wasn't published. So, so you know, she goes and demands to be published, and then like they're locked in the recording book, and he can see her expression, like oh, I did this was a bad idea. Like mm, now you've learned the lesson, Luxwana. <laughs> so there's like an entire meta narrative that we're creating around this book now. Yeah, <laughs> the, real- the hubris of the Roddenberry family is actually the lesson here like uh, just take him down a peg what hubris though. i can accept oh. isn't isn't that something to take from this i think that's the most positive thing we could possibly say that this book is offered it's offered a glimpse into the dark abyss for the roddenberry family <laughs> i read fan fiction this is not even mediocre fan fiction that's what's so surprising about it is it is worse than today's fan fiction yeah but it was published as a, a, a real paperback there's some really shitty authors that got hired for Star Trek novels, which we will get into later. Mm. 
Speaking of which, I think it's about time to wrap up the episode. So, what are we doing next week? Uh, well, it's your turn to pick. Right, but... and I haven't picked yet. So Harry will edit in an answer when I have one. Insert answer here. Yes. He still hasn't picked. Good job, Sam. My god, that sounds interesting. No, it doesn't. But we'll do it. Yeah. So, uh, for possibly the last time, <laughs> Ellen, <laughs> yes. if, you, if you have any better recommendations, we'll think about it. But for now, Ellen, why don't you send us out? I'm sorry I chose such an awful book, and you're welcome. <laughs> yes. All right, I'm Harry. I'm Sam. And this has been Cannon Chills. Cannon Chills.